Hey Lexington, we missed you. We're going to jump right back into our Bluegrass Conspiracy series in an effort to wrap up Season 1. If you haven't heard the earlier episodes from Season 1, we recommend you do so in order to be fully up to speed going forward. But if you don't have the time or just hate the sound of my co-host Johnny's voice, then no worries and you're in luck. I'm flying solo this week and we'll briefly recap everything Bluegrass Conspiracy now. Welcome to the Lexington Podcast, a show dedicated to the historic past and compelling present of Lexington, Kentucky. I'm Erica Fries. And I'm Jonathan O'Hare. The first half of our weekly show focuses on the fascinating history of Lexington, Kentucky, a town that has cemented itself as a southern capital for historic scandal. And later, we'll explore the contemporary Lexington scene, news, notable spots, and interesting locals. Glad you're here, y'all. Drew Thornton was a Lexington cop. In fact, in 1968, he was one of the first members of the brand new Lexington Narcotics Task Force. And as a narcotics agent, he relished every opportunity for arrest and brutality. Drew Thornton has long been described as a gutsy, ruthless risk taker. It wasn't long before he used his insider police connections and knowledge for more corrupted pursuits. He started small by selling the drugs that he confiscated, but eventually saw some untapped potential. You see, in the 1970s, Drew Thornton realized there was a supply and demand issue in Lexington, Kentucky. There was an insatiable demand for marijuana and cocaine, but hardly any organized supply. And Drew Thornton thought he was just the guy to fix that. He teamed up with his childhood friend, a handsome and charming man named Bradley Bryant. Both Drew Thornton and Bradley Bryant had a lot in common. They both grew up in Lexington's wealthy elite society. They both had well-to-do, influential parents, and they both attended military school as teenagers. In fact, it was at this elite military school where they met. After military school, Bradley Bryant moved to Philadelphia to become the frontman of a shady business, and Drew Thornton joined the Lexington Police Force, and on the police force met a man by the name of Henry Vance. Henry Vance was also from Lexington's upper crust society. Right after Drew Thornton and Henry Vance formed a solid bond on the police force, Henry Vance was fired for forging the sheriff's signature on an order of guns. He was immediately hired at the Capitol in Frankfurt using his family's old money connections because, um, politics doesn't mind if you forge documents, apparently. He quickly climbed the ranks in the Capitol and earned the esteemed appointment of top aide to the governor at that time, Julian Carroll. About this time, 
Old military school pals Bradley Bryant and Drew Thornton often met in Las Vegas on the weekends, along with a lot of the jet-set partier crowd of Lexington. Las Vegas wasn't just the party capital of the United States at the time, it was also becoming more increasingly under the control of the Mafia. And as a result, it became a headquarters of sorts for the major players of the illegal drug trafficking industry. Bradley Bryant and Drew Thornton decided to take advantage of the connections they were making in Vegas. They began to put together their own large-scale drug smuggling operation and set their sights of distribution and marketing on the bluegrass region in Kentucky. Drew Thornton knew the ins and outs of the corrupted local law enforcement in Lexington. He had good old boy higher-up pals in the Kentucky DEA that looked the other way, and he exploited his connections at the Bluegrass Airport in Lexington for landing planes of cocaine and marijuana. As stated earlier, he was a gutsy dude that relished any opportunity to look danger in the face. He thought nothing of long, dangerous flights under the radar to South America or jumping out of planes with part of his stash in an effort to avoid capture. No doubt Drew Thornton loved money, but he loved the thrill even more. Bradley Bryant, his literal partner in crime, was more of the business and connection side of the operation. His talent was charm and details. He made lots of unsavory friends in Vegas, and he used them to construct an entire drug empire. Drew Thornton and Bradley Bryant created a legit bodyguard and security company called, get this, Executive Protection, which allowed them to legally obtain everything you would need for an illegal drug smuggling operation. Things like armed cars, small planes, and very tough employees, many of whom were ex-Vietnam vets, who thought nothing of risking their lives for actual clients or actual product. Bradley Bryant and Drew Thornton used their little bodyguard company, Executive Protection, as a front for their drug business. And in the beginning, their drug business was incredibly successful. They were both ruthless and very organized, two attributes apparently required for success in the drug world. Bradley Bryant and Drew Thornton were also incredibly successful because they had an ace in their back pocket. Remember, their old pal Henry Vance was climbing the ranks of the state legislature in Frankfurt. Henry Vance was the eyes and ears of the governor's office and helped supply intel in order for the men to escape detection of the Kentucky State Police. Drew Thornton, Bradley Bryant, and Henry Vance secretly referred to themselves as the company. Drew Thornton was the transportation and distribution risk taker. Bradley Bryant handled the business details and connection logistics, and Henry Vance was the squeaky clean public image in the Capitol, ensuring they were all sideswiping any hint of being discovered. It's genius, right? They had every angle covered, every aspect thought out. And what made the situation even sweeter was the fact that, unlike the West and East Coasts of America, who were really known as the hotspots for drug activity, Kentucky was wide open, barely an afterthought in the drug world. Tons of unsupervised remote landing strips and densely forested plots of land along rivers to stash things on. Not to mention an entire state 
of well-connected cops completely looking the other way, or into their own wallets more accurately. 1974 and 1975 were when the company's pursuits really started to take off. They made millions in a matter of months, and it grew and grew and grew. Within a couple of years, though, the company stopped seeing eye-to-eye on the big-picture decisions needed for more expansion and growth. Bradley Bryant, the undisputed leader of the company, made the decision to partner with the infamous Chagra brothers for their supply connections in South America. The only problem with that is the fact that the Chagra brothers were known kingpins of drug smuggling. Their names were routinely in every major newspaper in the United States. The FBI had them under a microscope, watching every move that they made. And by 1978, they had been under investigation by federal prosecutors for over a year. Drew Thornton, who had retired from the Lexington Police Department at this point, was convinced that it was a really dumb move to partner with such a public enemy of the law. And that's really saying something. Death-defying, plain paratrooping, corrupt cop, ultimate risk-taker Drew Thornton thought it was too much of a risk. But Bradley Bryant, the leader, didn't care, and he partnered with the Chagras anyway. It was the first major rift of the company. Definite trouble in paradise. Through all of this, there was the attempted killing of federal prosecutor James Kerr, the car bombing of an elderly oil tycoon, Ray Ryan, the disappearance of a beautiful Lexington socialite, Melanie Flynn, the unsolved murder of Lee, the older Chagra brother. All of these cases allegedly happened as a result or in connection to the company. And we went into those in major detail in previous episodes, if you're interested. Where we last left off, though, was with one of the biggest smuggling trips the company pulled off, which incidentally was one of the last smuggling heists Drew Thornton and Bradley Bryant pulled off as partners. It was the winter of 1979, and Drew Thornton, with direction from Bradley Bryant and using Chagra Brothers supply connections, flew 10 tons of marijuana from Columbia into the Bluegrass Airport in Lexington. If you'll remember from a previous episode of ours, this was the same trip where the drugs were unloaded at the Bluegrass Airport in Lexington, and then a different pilot flew the plane and abandoned it at the Louisville Airport for reasons we don't know. When the Louisville police arrived, they found two men from Bradley Bryant's legit trucking company out of Savannah, Georgia, near the plane. The men in the trucking company claimed they were paid by Bryant himself to travel overnight from Savannah to clean and then lock the plane. When marijuana residue was found on board, the DEA was immediately called in. But the entire case was dropped before it was even a case. No charges, no further investigation. It turns out the head of the Kentucky division of the DEA, a man by the name of Harold Brown, was a close personal friend of the company's and a really close personal friend of Drew Thornton's. He was no doubt paid for years for the mutually beneficial relationship between himself and the company. Meaning drug law enforcement and drug smugglers had come to quite the arrangement in Kentucky in the 1970s. Just four months after this big smuggling trip, the unimaginable happens. 
the notorious Jimmy Chagra is indicted on drug charges and is looking at major time behind bars. Remember, Jimmy Chagra is one of the famous Chagra brothers, the major supply connection for the company in South America. Jimmy Chagra is from Texas and is charged in Texas, and the federal judge assigned to his case is none other than Judge John Wood, nicknamed Maximum John, for how tough his sentencing is on drug dealers. This wasn't going to be easy for Jimmy Chagra. The feds had been onto him for years, meticulously building their case against him. And despite all of his clever pivots, they were finally able to pin several drug charges against him. And then he winds up with the harshest judge in the Texas court system, Judge Maximum John Wood. This is the end for Jimmy Chagra. He knew it. His associates knew it. And the press was all over it. But drug kingpin, death-defying Jimmy Chagra wasn't going down without a fight. On May 29, 1979, what was supposed to be the first day of Jimmy Chagra's drug trafficking trial, Judge John Wood, Maximum John, was assassinated in his own driveway as he was leaving his house for the courtroom. He was killed by a single bullet to the back from a long-range rifle. And, weird fact, the hired-for-murder gunman was Charles Harrelson, who is the actor Woody Harrelson's father. Meaning, Woody Harrelson's father was a known hitman in Texas. In fact, at the time of the Judge John Wood's murder, Charles Harrelson had already been jailed for the murder of a grain dealer. He was sentenced to 15 years, but because of good behavior was released after five, just in time to be hired for the Judge Wood murder. By the way, he also claims to have been behind the assassination of JFK. So, there's that. By the way, Woody Harrelson tried for years to get his dad out of prison for the Judge John Wood murder because Charles Harrelson himself claimed he didn't actually carry out that particular assassination. But prosecutors had Jimmy Chagra himself, in a secretly recorded conversation to an associate, admit that he actually hired Charles Harrelson for the hit. At trial, the jury convicted him and gave him two life sentences to serve back-to-back, -back, which is actually pretty generous considering this was Texas. And Charles Harrelson died of a heart attack in prison in March of 2007 at the age of 68. Oh, and he almost successfully escaped from prison at one point. Pretty fascinating guy, actually. If you want a good read, just Google Charles Harrelson. Anyway, I digress. What did the murder of a federal judge have to do with the company and Drew Thornton and Bradley Bryant? Everything. The feds knew within hours of the Judge Wood murder that Jimmy Shogger was behind it, which put all of Jimmy Shogger's associates even more under the microscope. The investigation of Jimmy Shogger and his very extended labyrinthian web of drug trafficking was at the forefront of both the FBI and every major news outlet in the United States. This was the first assassination of a federal judge in the 20th century, and no one was letting him go gentle into that good night. Not when it was Maximum John and not during the war on drugs. The company became unglued. In a moment of simultaneous F you and I told you so, Drew Thornton, who always hated Jimmy Chagra and was always skeptical of his involvement in the company, flew to Savannah, Georgia to meet with his partner Bradley Bryant in an effort to create a game plan moving forward. 
Sally Denton, author of The Bluegrass Conspiracy, recounts their meeting at Bradley Bryant's favorite hotel he used as a headquarters of sorts. This conversation is according to an eavesdropping employee. Quote, Bradley flew into a rage. Employees heard him screaming and hollering and slamming his fists during the rambunctious argument he was waging with Drew. Drew, with characteristic cool, reminded Bradley how he had warned him to disassociate from Chagra. I'm a cop, remember? I know what's going to happen next. They're going to be all over us. Every move we make, Jimmy Chagra is a tactless ass who's going to drag you down with him. Bradley was tired of placating Drew, of constantly defending his decisions, of pointing out the necessity of associating with people such as Chagra. The heat will be on Jimmy Chagra, not on us, Bradley yelled. Incredulous at Drew's short-sightedness, Bradley was already salivating at the chance to inherit control of Jimmy's entire organization. Who wants it? Drew responded. Drew got up and walked out, one employee remembered. Didn't say a word to anyone, just walked out left town for good. A few minutes later, Bradley summoned his employees to his inner sanctum. From this point forward, you will not talk to Andrew Thornton. You will not deal with him. No one in this building is to have anything to do with Andrew Thornton ever again. Several things became apparent from Drew Thornton and Bradley Bryant's very last conversation. Drew Thornton was not going to back down from Bradley Bryant. And Bradley Bryant wasn't going to tolerate Drew Thornton's supposed verbal insubordination. Partnering with flashy flamboyant federal judge-killing Jimmy Chagra proved to be a really dumb move. Drew Thornton knew it and didn't understand how Bradley Bryant couldn't realize that. Jimmy Chagra exposed everything. Bradley Bryant didn't see how Drew Thornton didn't realize that with Jimmy Chagra behind bars and out of the picture, it left his business wide open for the taking. This was an opportunity for expansion for the big leagues. Drew Thornton knew that by getting involved in the big leagues meant taking over a highly publicized, extensively investigated enterprise. And he didn't want anything to do with that. Drew Thornton and Bradley Bryant met that night in Savannah, Georgia as partners. They left that night as enemies, as competition to each other in the drug world. They never spoke face to face again. The company was over. If you're wondering where Henry Vance, the mole in the capital and the unofficial third member of the company, landed after the split, well, he sided with his old buddy from the Lexington Police Department, Drew Thornton. Remember, at this point, Henry Vance is the chief administrative officer to the governor at the time. Sally Denton proves that there was something amiss in the governor's mansion for quite some time. Quote, A review of Kentucky Governor Julian Carroll's official phone records reflected hundreds of phone calls from the governor's office to the residences of Drew Thornton, Henry Vance, and Bradley Bryant every month since 1977. Eventually those calls would only be to Drew Thornton. As much as they couldn't see eye to eye on things, both men still stayed in the drug trafficking world and both men were on the run from law enforcement, this time in different directions. Bradley Bryant moved around a lot to avoid detection. 
only staying in hotels, only paying cash, only communicating with family and associates via wire or scrambled numbers from random payphones. His business philosophy was centered on the theory that completing one to two big, huge smuggling trips a year was the key to success, not several smaller, less profitable trips. He wanted to put all his connections and effort into a couple of big trips, all his eggs in one basket, so to speak. This is pretty smart on a lot of levels. The more people you involve for the more trips you make, the more you up your chances for getting caught, right? But at the same time, those smaller trips were more local affairs where you can control more of the process. Bradley Bryant was more interested in the big deals, complicated journeys to South America, where if everything went according to plan, and remember, Bradley Bryant was the ultimate detail-oriented planner, then the payout would be worth it. He figured, like everything else in life, the more you're willing to risk, the more you stand to gain. Bradley Bryant was a very analytical, detail-oriented person, a quality that, in the past, served the company very well. But now he was on his own, a fact that made him increasingly more paranoid. He didn't have his buddy Drew Thornton anymore. He decided for his next big drug smuggling trip, he'd need every resource available, even if those resources were highly classified weapons not available to the public. Bradley Bryant convinced his cousin, who had top military clearance at the time, to steal state-of-the-art weapons from the U.S.'s largest naval air weapons station, a giant chunk of land in the California desert called China Lake. If you've never heard of China Lake, that's probably on purpose. Located about 150 miles north of Los Angeles, China Lake is mainly where the United States Navy develops, researches, tests, invents, and evaluates weapons. It's an impressive, highly classified piece of land larger than the state of Rhode Island, and it goes without saying that it's pretty invite only. Despite that, Bradley Bryant's cousin, Larry Bryant, uses his clearance to, according to Sally Denton, author of The Bluegrass Conspiracy, quote, penetrate one of the government's most complex security systems in order to retrieve a remote control helicopter, 1,500 rounds of 30 caliber M1 tracer ammunition, and a radar receiver section from a Sidewinder missile, as well as night vision scopes. Bradley Bryant rents a storage unit called You Store It on New Circle Road here in Lexington, Kentucky, and stores a good portion of his China Lake bounty inside. The highly sophisticated equipment is sitting, waiting, ready to go at a moment's notice. For how clever Bradley Bryant always was, and he was an absolute master at covering his tracks, it seems, that after the split with Drew Thornton, he became more brazen and less cautious. He does eventually get caught, and it's in the weirdest way. Bradley Bryant, his China Lake pilfering cousin Larry Bryant, and another drug associate were in Philadelphia. They stayed close to a week in Suite 608 at the Sheraton Airport Inn. One day, the hotel maid was about to enter Suite 608 to clean and noticed the strong, unmistakable stench of marijuana. She alerted hotel management, who, in turn, alerted law enforcement. Police showed up expecting to bust, you know, just your run-of-the-mill pot smokers, but instead, surprisingly, found no drugs. What they did find 
was still shocking though. Semi-automatic weapons, $25,000 in cash, a police interception telephone scrambler, which was of course of particular interest to the cops, pamphlets on the art of escape, evasion and disguise, brochures describing the poisons used by the CEA, a book titled Top Secret Radio Frequencies of the US Government, and possibly the most damning, a handwritten journal of sorts with names and numbers of Bradley Bryant's associates, as well as code names of all of Bradley Bryant's secret operations. It was like stumbling upon his own playbook. In it, police found information for a storage unit in Lexington, and later, when they investigated that further, found his China Lake weapons stash in Unit 95 of the U Stork Complex on New Circle Road. So, where was Bradley Bryant during this raid? Just down the hall grabbing some ice? In the lobby getting breakfast real quick? Maybe just a few blocks away making a deal happen? Nope. One would assume, after leaving such sensitive, damning evidence in your own hotel room that you hadn't gone too far, that you had certainly planned on coming back. But no, he was at the Philadelphia airport about to board a plane for Atlanta. He was due in Atlanta the next day to throw his support around a mayoral candidate of all things. And I'm sure that mayoral candidate was composed of only the highest moral fiber. Anyway, the police at the hotel tipped off airport security who tracked him down, and what they found on him in his luggage was even crazier than what he left behind in the hotel room. In his bags, they found several Kentucky driver's licenses, all of different identities wigs and glasses in various disguises, telephone numbers for the CIA, stolen Texas license plates, semi-automatic weapons with silencers, $22,000 in cash, five different passports, the list goes on. And when questioned in custody, he only said, quote, I'm one of the good guys. I'm not a bad guy. And wouldn't say another word until his lawyer arrived. I'm one of the good guys. I'm not a bad guy. In the spring of 1980, Bryant was most certainly indicted, and the prosecution felt pretty confident. I mean, Lexington police raided a warehouse in Bradley Bryant's name and found a whole arsenal of classified weapons right there on New Circle Road. They found an entire arsenal of weapons worth a quarter of a million dollars, including taser stun guns, fully and semi-automatic weapons, tear gas, cocaine test kits, and the latest in high-tech state-of-the-art military devices called night vision goggles. Seeing as though some of the weapons and the equipment found weren't even close to being sold to civilians, it was easy to trace back to China Lake. It was easy to prove they'd been stolen from the military. However, after three weeks of a grueling trial with mountains of evidence against Bradley Bryant, the Lexington, Kentucky jury found him not guilty. Kentuckians definitely believe in their Second Amendment rights, and they didn't think there was anything wrong with having a storage unit full of weapons. They believed his reasoning, which was unbelievable. He was acquitted and walked out of the courtroom a free man that day. And here's a common theme with not only this sordid tale, but so many stories of greed. When you're caught, but then let go or acquitted by a jury of your peers, it only makes you more ruthless, more brazen. I mean, you can steal classified weapons from the Navy with no repercussions. That means you're invincible, right? Above the law. 
and unsurprisingly, Bradley Bryant went straight back to the dark side. But just because a Lexington jury let him off scot-free didn't mean the rest of the nation's law enforcement forgot about him. Just a few months later, in 1981, at the age of 38, he's arrested for selling 800 pounds of marijuana to an undercover DEA agent in Illinois. Remember how he loved those big deals? Well, this time, the risk definitely didn't justify the reward. He's held in an Illinois federal prison for one million in bail, awaiting another trial. By this time, all of his shady business dealings in both Georgia and Pennsylvania had caught up to him. The Philadelphia Bulletin newspaper reported in an article published in December of 1981 that, quote, since the fall of 1979, a complex news story has been unraveling like a bizarre tale of espionage. In bits and pieces, it has been learned that persons with links to the U.S. intelligence community may have secretly engaged in illegal drug dealing, gun running, theft of high-level military hardware, and aiding terrorists. The extent of Bryant's criminal activities are many and far-flung. It is doubtful that all of his criminal activities can ever be successfully investigated to an extent that would reasonably assure successful prosecution. The article also mentions that, in addition to his drug and weapons charges, he was also indicted on nine counts of fraud by the Federal Grand Jury of Philadelphia. It seems his shady business dealings had caught up with him through various paper trails that proved he consistently sold, quote, non-existent and price-inflated industrial equipment, then funneled the profits to various corporations controlled by Bryant. All of this came to light when his trucking company, Bryson International, filed for bankruptcy the year before. It should also be noted that the China Lake weapon stealing wasn't just for arming their own drug smuggling operation. The DEA was convinced, based on the amount of weapons seized, that Bradley Bryant and his cousin Larry Bryant had intended to sell the weapons in what the DEA called the largest guns for drugs conspiracy in the United States. They were convinced that the storage unit in Lexington was one of at least 15 other storage units stashed around the U.S. And in the end, they were right. Drug trafficking, arms smuggling, international espionage, fraud, embezzlement. This was the end for Bradley Bryant. He was sentenced to 15 years in a federal prison. The word conspiracy gets thrown around a lot this day and age. It's probably because the definition is actually pretty simple and easy to apply to a lot of situations. The technical definition of conspiracy, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is, quote, a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. A secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. Conspiracy is to plot, to scheme, to participate in collusion. Let's say you're a 15-year-old who sees an opportunity to steal from an ice cream truck with your best friend. You plan out all the details, the best time of day to rob it, the way you'll distract the workers, the getaway plan if you're caught. That's a conspiracy. You're planning to break the law with someone else. The heart of premeditation. 
It's funny how we apply the same term conspiracy to a much larger, highly organized, complicated operation. FBI, state police agencies, and intelligence centers had countless files on their investigations of the company. But the company all boils down to this. According to Sally Denton, who reports from FBI files, quote, it was an organized group of 300 members involved in drug smuggling, gun running, and international mercenary missions with a net worth of $1 billion. They had a board of directors, divisions of securities, real estate, distribution, a fleet of aircraft, at least nine airports owned or used by the group in the United States, a battery of attorneys across the country, and foreign bases in Colombia and the Caribbean. This ain't no ice cream truck. One is almost forced to argue that you don't get that big, that organized, that profitable without help from the top. It's obvious, though we don't realize the extent to which, that the members of the company didn't become a large-scale international operation despite of the government's actions, but instead, they became a large-scale international operation because of, and with help from, the government's actions. Sally Denton titled her book about this violent tale of greed, The Bluegrass Conspiracy. But to be honest, that's actually a pretty kind title. Generous, even. If by conspiracy you mean government and law enforcement cover-up, which it most certainly was, then it wasn't just one instance, one bluegrass conspiracy. There were several, several accounts of questionable involvement, or lack thereof, by law enforcement. At this point, I have to tell you about a man named Ralph Ross. When writing her famous book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy, Sally Denton worked with a determined Kentucky State Police cop by the name of Ralph Ross. Not Lexington Police, Kentucky State Police. Ralph Ross is the one who essentially tells her everything. He's like the main character in the book, actually. He's the common thread that puts all the pieces together for her. Years after everything came to an end, he tells her everything. Let's her go through all of his files, explains in detail his involvement with other law enforcement agencies at the time, like the FBI, etc. He was hunting Drew Thornton and the company since the beginning, for over a decade, and was always met with frustrating roadblock after frustrating roadblock. Either the company would be one step ahead due to their insider knowledge, or, curiously, the Lexington Police Department wasn't as helpful as they could have been always claiming that Ralph Ross, who was Kentucky State Police, was out of his jurisdiction by trying to make things happen in Lexington. Every other federal agency and every other state was after them. And by 1981, they were under investigation in six other states. Texas, Florida, Pennsylvania, California, Georgia, and Mississippi. But not Kentucky, not their home state and where they did the most amount of business. They were able to find a sort of refuge in Kentucky for years, well after it was obvious that they were up to no good. Kentucky was always this safe harbor for them. And that's what drove Ralph Ross up the wall about the whole thing. Take, for example, the land known as Triad. Triad was the piece of land in Jessamine County on the Kentucky River near Lake Harrington that Drew Thornton bought. 
And we've talked about this in a prior episode too, if you're interested in more details. But Triad apparently served a variety of purposes. It was a remote landing strip for the company's planes. It was a spot to stash drugs, but most concerning were the rumors that swirled that there was a large amount of, quote, foreign-looking soldiers on and around the highly secretive premises. Ralph Ross of the Kentucky State Police sent a team of undercover agents to check out the property, and they did indeed find evidence that there were barracks and a paramilitary training ground. The state police flew planes overhead to take aerial photos and found tank tracks on the property, too. And as it turns out, the Senate Committee on Security and Terrorism was already concerned about Triad. They were convinced through their own investigation Triad was a full-scale terrorism training ground and that drugs may have always just been a side moneymaker to their real intent, selling stolen weapons to foreign countries. But... How did the Lexington police respond to this? Well, the day after Ralph Ross sent his Kentucky State Police plane overhead to take photos, he gets a call from a Lexington police sergeant saying that Drew Thornton has a message for you. The next time you fly a plane over that property, he'll shoot it down. What? (laughs) First off, Ralph Ross noted that the Lexington PD doesn't have any jurisdiction in Jessamine County, but also, why are you, as a police sergeant, playing messenger to a threat? A threat to another police officer? Wouldn't you be concerned and want to investigate all that? If that wasn't enough, then consider the string of bizarre murders that happens in connection to the company about that time, one right after another, and many in Lexington. What they have in common is that they all have links to the members of the company in one way or another, whether they're dealers, party girls, or accomplices, and they all became informants in an effort to avoid prosecution. But what's interesting is the fact that these people are either murdered or go missing within hours of officially becoming informants for the police. It stands to reason that the only people who know or should know that you're an informant are the police, right? Word getting out that you're an informant is incredibly dangerous. Nobody wants you talking to the police if you know incriminating things about them. But somehow, within hours or even a day or so of someone ratting out the company, they'd go missing or murdered. Meaning, one could speculate that the police, the only people aware of the identity of these informants, were telling the company the identity of those informants. And here's an even crazier example of this supposed police collusion. And quite frankly, I think Sally Denton should have gone way more into this in her book because it's just so crazy. But during the height of accomplices becoming informants against the company, there was a double homicide that took place in Lexington. A young couple was found dead in a bathtub of their Lexington home each one stabbed several times in the chest by the same knife. They were known drug pushers in the area, and upon investigation by the good guy, Ralph Ross, of the Kentucky State Police, he found that the couple had recently become government informants against Drew Thornton and the company. Apparently, the Lexington Police did not consider the couple's known ties to the company to be an obvious factor in their death. Instead, and get this, The sergeant at the time told the Lexington Herald newspaper that upon further forensic investigation, it was, quote, 
a bizarre Romeo and Juliet suicide and homicide, end quote. Meaning, the detective's supposed theory was that the couple had taken turns stabbing each other with one knife. Heads of the investigation said that they recreated the crime and examined the angles of thrusts of the knife and determined that the girlfriend first stabbed the boyfriend several times in the chest and that the boyfriend lived just long enough to dislodge the knife from his own heart and then do the same to her. The shower was running when they were found and there was a substantial amount of blood on all the bathroom walls. Never mind that the medical examiner found the Lexington police's theory to be, quote, factually and physically implausible. The Lexington PD declared it was solved and shut the case immediately. No further investigation for the known cohorts of the company. Incredible. Another part of this complicated conspiracy that just can't be ignored is Harold Brown head of the Kentucky DEA, chief narcotics officer of the state, who was certainly in cahoots with the company. Every other federal agency in the country had identified the company as, and this is quoting Denton again, the country's largest narcotics, paramilitary, and weapons organization masterminded by a nucleus of Kentucky men. So for him not to shut that group down showed some sort of involvement on some level. Remember, he's the one that shows up to investigate the abandoned plane at the Louisville airport that was used in the huge drug run from Columbia. Though it was covered in marijuana residue, he claims he'll handle the case internally and then just drops it. And there were a lot of those drops in the 1970s. At one point, he claims that Thornton, Drew Thornton, works for him as an informant. Yeah, right. He was only snitching on his competition in the drug world while he ran his own game on the side. And one of the undeniably suspicious parts of government involvement with the company is the fact that the company had access to confidential materials, like the documents from the DEA that they used in order to form their own counterintelligence network as well as somehow having access to the, quote, secret and classified radio frequencies utilized by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, the FBI, U.S. Customs, and other law enforcement activities during the pendencies of a smuggling operation. And then, of course, don't forget they somehow walked out of China Lake with highly classified weapons. Oh, and also don't forget they have a mole in the governor's office, their dear friend Henry Vance, who is feeding them pertinent information as well. There were so many angles to this conspiracy. An incredibly complicated, intricate web of corruption. And we're only halfway through, y'all. <laughs> Bradley Bryant's arrest and conviction marked a major turning point for the company certainly the beginning of the end. There were two men at the very top of the company's drug kingdom, Drew Thornton and Bradley Bryant. And now one of them was completely out of the picture. You have to wonder how Drew Thornton felt when Bradley Bryant was sentenced to 15 years at a maximum security prison. Here was his former partner, a man he had built a drug empire with, who let ego and control sever their entire business as well as their decades-old friendship. How did Drew Thornton feel, knowing Bradley Bryant was caught and put away for years? 
amused, satisfied, vindicated, scared that he'd be next. It was probably all of the above. Remember, Drew Thornton was both a cop and he went to law school at one point. He was a smart guy who knew that a China Lake government conspiracy charge, even if he wasn't fully involved in it, would be pretty hard to beat. He knew law enforcement had been after him for years. There's no telling the extent of what they had on him. He also knew that the disassociation with Bradley Bryant forced a lot of their subordinates to choose sides. Like one of those bad divorces that forces the kids to choose which parent to live with. The company was comprised of a complicated network of over 300 people who fulfilled lots of roles. Transportation crews, pilots, drivers, dirty cops, lawyers, mercenaries, arms merchants, polygraphers, bankers. Though not every position would be held to equal punishment, there was still a lot of guilty people out there with a lot of incriminating information of how Drew Thornton was at the top of the food chain. He knew that most people, when faced with charges and the threat of living the rest of their life in a federal prison, like his partner, Bradley Bryant, well, most people would talk. They'd spill their guts to the feds in an effort to avoid prosecution, or worse, work for the feds as a snitch, going undercover to trap him. Bradley Bryant's end probably signaled a lot to Drew Thornton, but chief among them was to be very, very careful who you trust now. At this point, in 1981, Drew Thornton was on the run. He stayed in the drug game, but unlike Bradley Bryant, kept a very low profile. It helped that he was his own pilot, flying himself from hideout to hideout, never staying in one place too long. He watched every move of every person around him, and he never took chances. If he got even a whiff of being tracked, he'd change his course completely, only relying on the loyalty of a very select, very tight-knit inner circle. There was a warrant for his arrest, but he wasn't about to show up for that. He reasoned that if he stayed on the run long enough, he could claim he didn't know that there was a warrant out for him. Even Ralph Ross of the Kentucky State Police told Sally Denton at one point that as much as he absolutely hated Drew Thornton, he had to admire his stealth. He was never right where they were looking. That would all come to an end about a year later when Drew Thornton sticks his neck out of hiding for his old pal in the Kentucky State Capitol, Henry Vance. You seriously won't believe what happens next. Join us for our next episode when we finish the tale of the Bluegrass Conspiracy with another high-profile murder, entrapment, sister-rivalry love triangle, hmm? and a very, very famous fall from grace. The Lexington Podcast is written, edited, and produced by Erica Fries and Jonathan O'Hare. All music written and performed by Jonathan O'Hare. Audio and sound by Buns Productions. Content framework credit to Sally Denton, author of The Bluegrass Conspiracy. Other sources this week include the Philadelphia Bulletin and the Lexington Herald-Leader. Feel free to contact us via email at lexingtonpodcast at gmail.com and check out our instagram this week and follow us on there we are doing a giveaway with some amazing bluegrass conspiracy themed goodies we are lexington podcast on instagram as well 
As always, a special thanks to our sources, especially, of course, Sally Denton, author of The Bluegrass Conspiracy, and our parents who have always supported us no matter what. Jonathan will be back next week, and as much as I hate to say this, I really missed him. <laughs> See you then. <laughs> <laughs>